Welcome to Site 6. This is a large area with a great variety of water environments. It has riffles and vast open spaces. We decided to investigate the history of the area. Winnipiac medicine man, Fox Running, talks about this tribe. Well, at the end of the Ice Age, when the glacier retreated, what is now, now Long Island Sound was once a big valley with a large lake in the middle of it. Now at that time, 10, 12, 13,000 years ago, there were a lot of animals running around in this valley. Animals you don't see today. Things like woolly rhinoceros, mammoths, mastodon, giant beaver, and many other creatures. And also along this valley, different groups of Native Americans were hunting these animals. Well, out of jealousy, some of the natives started to quabble about who had the best hunting territory or would fight over who had the right to hunt in certain areas. And so they began to squabble and fight amongst themselves. And the Creator said, look, there's enough for everyone. Why are you fighting? You must stop. I have provided all that you need. Please don't fight anymore. So for a while there was peace. And after a period of time, they went back to fighting again. And the Creator came back. And this time he was furious. And he said to the people, because you have disobeyed me, I will destroy this land. And with that, he stomped his foot on the eastern end of what is now Long Island Sound. And the waters rushed in, killed all the animals, killed a lot of people, and a few managed to escape by running to the, the highlands, which is now the shoreline of Connecticut. And that's how Long Island Sound came to be today. The river provided lots of different kinds of fish. Shad, salmon, bass, trout, uh, to name a few. They also used the freshwater clams, the inside of which was shiny like mother of pearl as part of their decorations. They would make beads and stuff out of that. Everything that they utilized came from mother nature. There were no supermarkets or hardware stores or grocery stores that they could go and buy stuff. They did have a trade system. For instance, if they couldn't get a particular type of stone that they used to make a particular tool, they would trade to Native Americans from other parts of the country. All right? What did they trade? They traded what they had. Some of your inland Native Americans did not have certain kinds of fish or other skins or food, and they would barter. What do I mean by barter? They would trade back and forth. There was a great trail system that spread all over the countryside, not only along the eastern seaboard, but all the way out to the west. That trail system had a name, and it was called Mishimayagat, okay? That's the great trail system. You ride in your parents' cars today on part of that trail system. 
Route 1, Route 80, Route 77, to name a few. They were all originally Native American trails, okay, which over the years were widened into wagon paths and eventually into roads. So to, to this day, you're riding on part of Mishimayagat. The bear is he with no tail. Okay? There's a story about that. I can tell that story if you like. All right, would you like that story? All right. Once long, long time ago, the bear was walking down the trail and he came across the fox and the fox was dragging up the trail a whole string of fish. And he said to the fox, where did you get the fish? Now, of course, this was winter time. He says, oh, I went down to the lake and I stuck my tail in the water. And every time a fish came along, I would yank it out. And pretty soon I had a whole string of fish. So the bear said, well, gee, that's a pretty good idea. I think I'll go try that. What the bear didn't know was the fox had stolen the fish from a Native American fisherman that was fishing at the lake. So the bear went down to the lake, and by the time it got, he got there, of course, the fisherman was gone. And he stuck his tail in the water. And he sat, and he waited, and he waited, and waited, and nothing happened. And the water froze around his tail. And when he got, went to get up, he pulled his tail off. And that's why, to this day, the bear has no tail. Scientists are concerned about the low levels of dissolved oxygen in this area. They are worried that stormwater runoff and low water flow are contributing to the depletion of oxygen in the water. Most water critters need oxygen in the water to survive. Riffle areas help this condition. As the water bubbles over the rocks, it picks up oxygen from the air. Next, we talk to Lisa DeFrancisco. Lisa works as an educator for the Whitney Water Center. She greatly enjoys the outdoors. Lisa sees her work with the schools as an opportunity to share her enthusiasm for the environment and all the lessons that our future generations need to know to keep our environment safe. Typically, as you move downstream, all the problems and pollution that happens upstream in the watershed tends to accumulate. So the further up you go along the Mill River towards Sleeping Giant and up into Cheshire, you're going to find a higher water quality than farther south along the river. There is acid rain in Connecticut. As far as its effect on the Mill River, it generally doesn't affect it that much. The pH of the Mill River and Lake Whitney tend to be around 7, which is neutral or slightly higher because of the geology that's in the area. It buffers the effects of the acid rain. There is a lot of litter. The Lake Whitney watershed is a highly urbanized area, so with people comes trash. Although with Project Water, we haven't found too much trash in the areas that we've been testing, so that's an encouraging sign. Every once in a while, usually once a year, the water company schedules a river cleanup and we'll target different watersheds that are in our service area and the Mill River has been the recipient of a river cleanup numerous times. We collected data about the plants and animals that live there. 
This caddisfly house is built with pebbles from the river bottom. Caddisflies are indicators of good water quality. Lily pads have a long stem so the leaves can float. This way they get plenty of sunshine, even when the water is murky. Honeysuckle comes in 180 species. Most of the varieties are deciduous, but some are actually evergreen. Hummingbirds and caterpillars like these plants. It has bell-shaped flowers that produce a sweet, edible nectar. If you break the stem, you will smell a, a pungent, sweet odor. Poison ivy. Watch out for this plant. As you can see, it is not always red. You should try to remember the shape of the leaves. They are usually shiny. You can even identify this in the winter months. The vines have brown fuzzy hairs all over them. If you find yourself touching this by accident, wash right away with laundry soap. It is the oil on the plant that causes an awful skin reaction. Believe it or not, birds eat the berries of this nasty plant. Sumac. In the fall, these berries turn red. The stems are thick and contain a white, milky sap. The birds will wait until winter to eat the red berries when the snow falls and other food is scarce. People can eat the berries too. It has a pleasantly tart taste. Plantain. These leafy plants send up spikes of seeds that look like candles. It is a common plant that you might find growing as a weed in your garden. Rabbits enjoy eating the leaves, while birds enjoy the seeds. Well, fortunately, people are becoming more environmentally aware. So what was once very, very polluted is now being cleaned up, okay? That's very important because you pollute the land, the air, and the water. It affects every one of you. Native Americans respected the land. They never took more from it than they needed for their own survival. They didn't do things for profit. Two words, right? One is wanishi. You all say wanishi? Wanishi means may your path be beautiful, okay? The other word is arumshimaki. Arumshimaki. That means thank you kindly. <laughs>